The history of human cruelty is long and brutal. And on our show, we cover all of it, one subject at a time. I'm Kevin Young. And I'm Dan Hergan. And we host a podcast called Torture. We'll discuss the methods, devices, and the people that implemented them, from ancient times to modern day. Ling Chi to waterboarding, Nero to Dennis Rader, and everything in between, including the pop culture they influenced. Also, food. And lots of Dungeons and Dragons. Lots, lots of Dungeons and Dragons. Episodes are out now, and new episodes are released every other Sunday. So like, follow, and subscribe to us on all podcast platforms, including YouTube. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TorturePod, and email us at TorturePod at gmail.com. But most importantly, listen to Torture, A History of Human Cruelty, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to week 42 of True Crime B&B. I'm Beth. And I'm Bailey. And this week, Bailey is our normal bad guy, and I am our normal good guy. So and the resident bad guy. <laughs> you are the resident bad guy. So with no further ado, let's just get going. All right. My story is going to take place in Florida, because all the weirdest stuff happens in Florida, as we know. <laughs> but first, we're going to start out with the victim of this. His name was Chad Olson. He was born originally in Alton, Illinois, on September 28th, 1970. Okay. After he graduated high school, he didn't want to go to college like the rest of his siblings did. He decided instead to travel the world and see what else was out there. And in that endeavor, ended up joining the Navy. Okay, that's a good way to see the world. Mm -hmm, He certainly did. (laughs) So he served in the Navy in Operation Desert Storm during the Gulf War. And then after he retired in 1997, he married his wife, Nicole, in 2007. They settled down together in Lando Lakes, Florida... And eventually in 2012, Nicole gave birth to their daughter, Alexis. And from there, their entire worlds revolved around Alexis. Of course. Of course. Except he had a kid at 40-something. That that would be rough. Mm -hmm. Nicole described Chad as the ultimate people person, someone who would go out of his way to compliment strangers and would constantly strike up conversations with people anywhere they went, almost annoyingly so, where she's like, they're just at the store and she's not looking her best and he's constantly talking to people. She's like, can we just get home? Like... (laughs) But he was just, that just kind of describes his personality for you a little bit. Stop bringing attention to me. I look like yeah. a homeless person. I don't want to see Nancy from church. <laughs> like, you know? <laughs> On January 13th, 2014, after a day of work, the couple met together as usual, and Chad surprised Nicole with a date night. He had gotten it all planned out before he even told her about it. He'd gotten a sitter ready for their two-year-old daughter. And then he had bought them tickets to go see the movie Lone Survivor at a theater in Wesley Chapel, Florida. Wow. I've never seen that movie. I guess it's like a war movie. I don't know if I've seen it or not. They went ahead, dropped the daughter off, and then went on their journey to the theater. Once they got to the theater, they took a seat, and then the preview started, and Chad pulled out his cell phone to send one last text. I suddenly know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He pulled out his cell phone to text one last time the babysitter and with any updates, just letting her know, hey, the movie's starting. I can't have my phone out anymore. Yeah. Sitting behind the Olsons was retired police chief, 71-year-old Curtis Reeves and his wife, Vivian. Upon seeing Chad on his phone, Curtis got upset and basically demanded him to put the phone away, even though the previews hadn't even ended yet. 
and Chad kind of sounds like he was a little bit sassy back, but, you know, if somebody just walked up to me and the previews are on, I'd probably be like, ah, oh, fuck off, mind your business. And it sounds like that's what happened. Yeah. So at this point, Curtis Reeves, the older man behind them, decides to go down, complain to the manager of the theater that this guy's on his phone and he needs to come in there and tell him to get off. Okay. However, once Curtis returned to his seat, he realized that Chad had put his phone away because all he wanted to do was send out one final text to the babysitter. And instead of just letting it be, Curtis decided to lean over to Chad and make a snarky comment about, oh, I wouldn't have had to call the manager if I would have known you were actually going to listen to me or something like that. I so, wasn't listening to you, dude. It's yeah, just what I was, I was going to do anyway. Decent human. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. So he started an argument further about this issue. And eventually, Chad stood up and turned around and threw some popcorn into his face. Wow. In result of the popcorn being thrown in his face, Curtis decided that he was in life-threatening danger, and Curtis retrieved his semi-automatic concealed carry handgun and opened fire on the couple. The bullet, it sounds like there was only one bullet fired. However, the bullet hit Nicole, who had been holding her husband on the chest to like kind of keep him back and say, just, it's not worth it, sit down. So she's standing next to him with her hand on his chest yeah. saying, just back off. She's saying, you, you know what, to do this. he's Let's, not worth the argument. We can move. Yeah, exactly. So she's like consoling her husband and the bullet went through her ring finger on that hand and then into her husband Chad's chest. Oh my God. <sighs> the Olsons, well, it sounds like luckily there was an off-duty ER nurse that was there and was tending to their wounds while Curtis Reeves and his wife left the theater. Yeah, but, sneaking away so they don't get arrested, hopefully. Uh, they did get arrested, however. Well, I, no, I mean, if they were hopeful. I wasn't they were, hopeful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. The Olsons were taken to separate hospitals to be treated because, obviously, Chad was in a lot worse situation with a right. bullet wound in the chest versus her hand wound. Right, he needs a different kind of doctor. Nicole, at this point, had no idea what was going on with her husband, and after being treated for her wound, she was informed that her 43-year-old husband, Chad, had not survived his wound. Curtis Reeves was taken into custody at this point. Prosecutors brought second-degree murder charges against Curtis Reeves, which he attempted to claim self-defense via Florida's stand-your-ground law. What the fuck? Mm -hmm. It's popcorn. Yeah. This is However, in 2017, a judge came back and denied that request, saying that the stand-your-ground law does not apply in the situation. Or and popcorn. Over popcorn. Yeah, popcorn is not a weapon. Actually, that's a famous thing that was said during the trial. Yeah. So they told him, no, you can't use that, but you can still use self-defense. You just can't use the specific stand-your-ground law. The trial kept getting pushed back because, I guess, in Florida, this law, after Chad was shot and murdered... This law, they kept making changes to it, and they kept having to decide if it was retroactive for this case. So it got put off for eight years, and the trial didn't happen until this year in 2022. Curtis Reeves, you would think, is in custody this entire time after murdering a man in cold blood. Doubtful. But no, he was sent home to stay with his family comfortably until he could be seen in a trial. <laughs> right, until the trial was able to start. Yeah, that's a little bit infuriating. And well, everything about this is infuriating. When Curtis was able to start his trial on February 7th, 2022, he portrayed himself as, keep in mind, this is a retired Tampa police captain who had been not just the police captain, but training SWAT teams for the last 30 years in his career. He portrayed himself as this fragile little elderly man 
who was rightfully in fear for his life after Chad leaned over the seat and threw popcorn in his face. All I have to say about that is bullshit. Yeah, you weren't fucking scared. You were not scared. No, you were mad. You, you weren't were scared. Upset. There's a difference between mad and scared. Mm-hmm. And if that guy was terrified of a dude with his popcorn, he had no business being a police officer all those years. Absolutely. He even testified, and this is a quote, In my entire law enforcement career, I have never encountered somebody so out of control. With popcorn. Because he threw popcorn in your face after you continually harassed him about something that was over and done with. Yeah, you totally instigated the entire exchange. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Even to play devil's advocate for a second, Mm -hmm. I absolutely freaking hate going to the movies Mm -hmm. and having somebody in front of me with their cell phone on because it's distracting. Because the light is shutting your pupils and then it's hard to see the movie. Well, sure. It makes it hard to see... And I hate it when people stand behind me or sit behind me and talk. Or even if they're on the other side of the theater and they talk. Mm -hmm. It's like you're in your living room. You're not in your living room. You're in a place where we all paid the same amount of money to come here and see this movie. And you're keeping us from being able to watch it. Mm -hmm. But never once has it occurred to me that I should shoot one of them. Exactly. I mean, if you are upset, go to the manager. Sure. That's fine. I almost get that. Like... If, I totally if, get that. Yeah. And if you go to the manager and say, hey, my experience was ruined because of this situation, I'm sure the manager would gladly give you tickets to another day or showing of that movie, whatever. Right. At no point was it ever necessary to even have a gun in this situation. He was justified in going to the manager when he did. Yeah. But when he came back, his ego wouldn't let him just sit the hell down and shut the hell up. He had mm-hmm. to be mouthy. Mm-hmm. He had to show what a big man he was, Mm -hmm. and he totally instigated the whole situation. And yeah, Chad shouldn't have thrown popcorn at him. That was immature. But he was getting mad now, too, and his ego also was kicking in. But we are all guilty of doing immature, stupid shit when we're annoyed. You know, like, that's just being human. Chad should not have thrown the popcorn, but it's not a death sentence for throwing popcorn at somebody. Yeah. And for that cop to say... That he thought he was justified in killing him mm-hmm. over popcorn. Mm-hmm. I, that's just outrageous. Infuriating. It's outrageous. While we're on that note, though, that he's testifying essentially that he threw popcorn in his face and was leaning over the chair to get to him. And that's why he thought he was coming at him. And that's why he drew the gun and fired at him, right? They also had this entire situation caught on the footage from the security camera in the theater. And he started changing his mind and his story once that was shown to the the jury. All right. So what did it show differently? So his story was that he threw this and now he's climbing over the chair. He never once climbed over the chair. He never leaned over the chair. All he did... lifted his foot off the floor. Exactly. All he did was reach his hand down, pull out a handful of popcorn and throw it in the guy's face. That did. Oh, I thought it was the whole bucket. Well, it, it was sounds just... like it sounds like he took the bucket and went like that. Okay. So he didn't lunge at him. He just took a bucket and and even if he had thrown the bucket, they're, yeah, they're paper. <laughs> they're paper. It's and not so, like it's made of glass. He said, "Yeah, he did that." But Curtis that now claims that he also threw his cell phone at him, and that's what he thought hit him. I think that's a lie. Conveniently, the only person who saw Chad possibly throwing a cell phone or at any point attempting to get over the seat was Curtis's son, Matthew, who also happened to be in the theater. So Curtis's son, Matthew, was there, but not with his dad. Sounds like he was on a different row or something. Yeah, I wouldn't want to sit with that dude either. So it's just very fishy. But again, with what was shown in court on the security footage, it makes no sense 
his claims that he retrieved the gun because Chad had thrown the popcorn into his face. Because he threw the popcorn in not even three quarters of a second passed before he was shot. Wow. So he already had the gun out at this point. As soon as Chad stood up, he pulled I'm the sure. gun out. I'm sure. I, I can't imagine that he thought that this was going to be an okay thing to do. Mm-hmm. Somebody yep. that's going off on a short fuse like that mm-hmm. should not have been training SWAT officers. It's just all of that came out in trial. Finally, the verdict came back on February 25th, 2022. Don't want to know. I don't want to know. Don't want to know. And the jury, they only deliberated for three and a half hours, but they came back from deliberation and announced that Curtis Reeves was not guilty. Of course he wasn't. Yep. And after this, he was released from the courthouse as he's walking down. He talks to reporters and says, this is great. It's been a long eight years. I couldn't wait for it to be over with. Yeah, poor you. Poor you, what you it's had to go through. so hard for you while you've been at home with your loved ones. Unbelievable. While there is a two-year-old girl who will never know her father now. Unbelievable. Yeah. There was evidence. There was video. Countless witnesses. I don't believe for one second that that guy thought that he was in danger. He was mad. He was not scared. Mm-hmm. There's no way that guy was terrified. He saw a younger man stronger than him, who was willing to stand up to him, and he didn't like that he felt like a frail old man anymore. That's exactly right. You let the management handle these things. You do not shoot people in the theater because you're mad at them. Oh, my God. I just want somebody to take this guy down a peg. You know what I mean? Like, I don't wish bad upon him. Well, the fact that they found him not guilty enrages me. He was totally guilty. I don't know what they were thinking. I really don't. I try not to blame juries for what they come to because they probably saw way more evidence than I did. You know what I mean? And maybe some of it was excluded. Some of the True. evidence may have been not allowed in court. Maybe I don't know. they had to say some of this was presented and then the, jur- I mean, the judge came back and said, strike that. You can't take that into account. That's possible. Sure. Maybe so. But it's, I really feel like they made a huge mistake with that. I think that they did too. So since the upsetting results, Chad's widow, Nicole, has turned her anger and mourning into a positive. She has since started up the Olson Family Foundation, and with that, she's collecting donations and money and also has a lot of resources. Her mission is to help children who have been affected by gun violence, as her daughter Alexis has been. So if you are interested at all in going and visiting that, seeing what they're all about, and also what the money can go towards, okay, you can go to Olson, which is spelled O-U-L-S-O-N, familyfoundation.com. And like I said, they have a lot of resources. They do scholarships for kids. It's just such an upsetting story. There's just no reason that had to happen. Poor Nicole. Poor Nicole. Like, eight years she's waited for this. Only to have this huge disappointment. And you know what's weird? It's like when you see politics anymore and the guy who votes on the right absolutely hates the guy who votes on the left and, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. But if they sat down with each other and just talked and politics were completely off limits, mm-hmm. they'd probably be buddies. Yeah. They'd probably get along fine. It's just that you see someone in this particular light and you just hate that thing about mm-hmm. them. And you... I will kill you! You don't look at the big picture. You look at the one annoyance you have right now and think, oh, then I must despise you. But it's... Yeah. And the thing is, they really did have a lot in common because, I mean, he was ex-Navy. So was Curtis. Curtis also, I mean, a little before Chad's time, but he also was retired from the Navy. And the wives worked at the same company. 
Oh my They're God. in that city in Florida. They wow. never met each other, but they all, they literally were the exact same couple just like a couple decades later. Oh my God. That's even more tragic. Yeah. So sad. Mind boggling. It really is. I hope you've got a happier, happy, happy. Well, my story also involves some semblance of gun violence. Oh, good. We're really on a roll here with the gun violence. <laughs> yeah, we really are. The last few episodes have been very dark and difficult. This story is the story of Deborah Puglisi. Deborah, or Debbie Puglisi, grew up in Mount Holly, New Jersey. Now I'll warn you, that's her married name. Mm-hmm. I could not find anything that gave her maiden name. She had been born in 1950, and in her teens, she dated a boy named Bill Sharp. But when she graduated from high school in 1969, even though she liked Bill, she split from him and took off for greener pastures across the bay in Delaware. Mm-hmm. Debbie was trusting and idealistic. She wanted to help people. But she also wanted to see a little more than her little spot in New Jersey. Her ex-boyfriend, Bill, had headed for Pennsylvania. They were still friends, and while visiting Bill in Pennsylvania, she met someone else. Nino Puglisi had been born July 3, 1947. He was a loving, helpful person. He was well-respected and liked, and Debbie certainly thought the same. This may have been a little bit sticky, but the interest between Nino Puglisi and Deborah was mutual, and they began dating. By 1973, Nino and Debbie were married and starting their careers. Debbie was a nurse. Nino was a funeral director. Both were reliable and trustworthy. What? (laughs) What a dynamic duo. I like that. Well, later she became a hospice nurse, which is even more dynamic a duo. Mm -hmm. Strange. I mean, I love it, but it was just like the total opposite spectrum, you know? Both were reliable and trustworthy. People knew that if they said they would do something, they would do it. Mm -hmm. If they agreed to be somewhere, they would be there. Five years into their marriage, they had twins. They had built reputations as individuals and as a family. And in 1998, Nino and Debbie were excited to celebrate their 25th wedding anniversary. They moved to a new home, their dream home in Academy Hills, Delaware, and they were getting settled in. The children had gone away to college, so Nino and Debbie were living the contented life, having some free time on their hands at home. Mm-hmm. basically empty nesters. Mm-hmm. But the life of a funeral director can be unpredictable and present some very long days, and so Nino occasionally came home in the afternoons for a nap. Ten months after moving into their new home, on April the 20th, 1998, that's what Nino decided to do. This was a Monday. Debbie was outside working in the front yard, tending to her roses before she was expected at work later that day. So by the time Debbie's co-workers had started to wonder that night why she hadn't arrived at work and she hadn't called to let them know she couldn't make it, they intuitively thought something must be wrong. Maybe she'd become ill. Maybe she had fallen. Maybe something happened that she had to go take care of and forgot to call. So in the interest of helping her out, if they possibly could, they went to her house to check on her. Neighbors saw them. The neighbors came over. They went into the house to see if everything was okay. But nothing was okay. So the house was unlocked when they got there? Yes. Okay. In the master bedroom, they found Nino, shot at point-blank range between the eyes and clearly deceased. Debbie was nowhere to be found, although if she had gone somewhere, it didn't appear as if she had taken anything with her. Police were called. Mm -hmm. With no sign of Debbie, no signs of forced entry, no weapon at the crime scene, police initially looked at Debbie as a suspect in Nino's killing. They had no other leads to follow up on, and for days, they had no idea where Debbie was, whether she was still alive, and if she was, had she been the one to shoot her husband? On the fifth day, April the 24th, just as investigators had begun to think Debbie must also be dead, 
there was a 911 call that began to expose the story in a very different light. So let's go back to the day of Nino's murder and add in the pieces that we now know but they didn't know until after the 911 call. Okay. On April the 20th, 1998, Debbie, as we know, had been working outside in her garden. This was a Monday. This random stranger, later found to be 40-year-old drug addict named Donald Flagg, had smoked crack, gotten in his car, and was driving through neighborhoods looking for someone to kidnap and rape. As he drove past Debbie and Nino's house, he saw Debbie outside in the front yard tending to her roses and decided she was going to be the one. So he parked his car one street over and then walked back to their house. He snuck around to the side, found a side door that was unlocked. Debbie usually kept it locked, but apparently had forgotten that day, and went inside to wait for this unsuspecting woman to come in from the garden so he didn't run the risk of making a scene outside where people might see them. After a short time waiting on Debbie to finish up outside and return to the house, Flagg was surprised to hear Nino coming into the house for his afternoon nap. Mm -hmm. He confronted Nino as Nino walked into the dining room, stuck his gun in Nino's face, and shot him at very close range, and then dragged his lifeless body into the bedroom. Outside, Debbie had heard nothing because of the noise from construction work and traffic nearby. Inside, Flagg had decided to leisurely wait for Debbie to come inside and kill some time drinking a few beers. It's all so casual, like it's nothing. Just... Yeah, that's super smart. Let's get fucked up before we try to... Well, he was already on crack, so yeah, thinking the let's... beer isn't going to be that much of a change. <laughs> valid, valid. After a while, Debbie had decided it was time to go in and get cleaned up and get ready for work, so she went back into the house. When she made it into the house, Flagg was waiting for her. As she stood at the sink in the kitchen, washing her hands, he surprised her by walking up behind her and punching her in the head. The impact knocked her glasses off and stunned her and then knocked her to the floor. He then tied her up, dragged her to the basement where he sexually assaulted her, made sure she was securely hogtied, and left her there. Then he went outside, walked to the next street where his car was parked, drove his car over to the Pugliese's house. He backed up as close as he could toward the front door, parked, and went back into the house. Once inside, he got back to the basement, wrapped Debbie up inside a comforter, tied it closed, carried her upstairs, out the front door, and stuffed her into the trunk of his car. Debbie was, of course, terrified. No idea of where he was taking her or for what purpose. Flagg drove for a while, stopped the car, got out, took her out of the trunk, and into his own residence. He lived in Wellington Woods, Delaware, which was about five miles away. Upon reaching his house, Flagg took Debbie inside, raped her again, secured her, then, out of curiosity, drove back to the Pugliese neighborhood. He saw the area swarming with law enforcement, and when he returned to his own house again, he said to Debbie, My God, the cops are all around your house! He then moved her to the floor of his bedroom, where she spent the rest of her captivity. Over the next few days, Flagg was thrilled, smugly telling Debbie about what had happened. He told her how he had killed her husband, He bragged about the investigation being on television and in the newspapers. He read the newspaper articles to her. He felt bulletproof because they had no leads on him. He laughed and told Debbie that he thought he had committed the perfect crime. He thought it was amusing that she was the one being suspected. Flagg turned the television on and watched the updates. When he went outside for any reason, he blared a radio so that people outside would not hear Debbie screaming. Debbie noted that she was really most upset by hearing her brother whose job was in law enforcement, talking about her in the past tense. While some people looked at her as a suspect, her brother knew better, but he also knew that for her to be missing for four days, she was unlikely to still be living. 
By the fourth day, most missing under such circumstances would be dead. Debbie later learned that her children had purchased two cemetery plots, fearing the worst about their mother's condition. She was hogtied for most of the next five days, which would have been excruciating. Every day, he repeatedly raped and tortured her, still in her bindings, which for most of the time she was there consisted of ropes tying her hands together, ropes tying her feet together, and rope tying her wrist bindings to her ankle bindings behind her. Five days of this. Unimaginable. Flag was going on with his day-to-day almost as if nothing was happening. Like having a sex slave in your bedroom is just a normal day-to-day occurrence. So he's still going to work and stuff? He is not. Okay. okay. We'll find that out in a minute. Gotcha. His neighbors had heard no strange sounds coming from his home, no doubt because they were used to hearing the radio or television blaring away at all hours. Mm -hmm. He was outside mowing his yard on Wednesday, two days after grabbing Debbie, and nodded and waved at his neighbor nonchalantly. Nothing unusual happening here, just another regular day at the flag house with a woman kidnapped in his bedroom. Sociopath. Yeah, seriously. Debbie tried to humanize herself and to befriend Flag in an attempt to get him to let her go. There's a point after which a kidnapper can't see any way to let a victim go, and she was positive that day was looming. So she tried to act compassionate and talk kindly to him. It turned out that Donald Flagg had taken that whole week off of work and his job at the body shop at Chrysler mm-hmm. in Newark, but eventually he had to go back to work. So on April 24th, Flagg planned on heading back, but before he did, Deborah somehow, I don't know how she managed to tell him this, but she got him to use handcuffs while he was away. She probably made him think that the handcuffs would be more secure than rope. Mm-hmm. You would think it would be. But she knew that the way handcuffs are manufactured with the little chain between them, mm-hmm. it would give her the, a little bit of wiggle room and maybe she'd be able to do something with that. That's true. If your hands are tied with rope, they're right next to each other. Yeah. But if they're in handcuffs, you've got two inches or like whatever. Like leverage, a little bit of leverage. Yeah, a little bit so you can move your wrists around and you can move them around each other. So she knew she'd be able to do something with that little bit of space. Smart. Yeah. So Flag placed handcuffs on her wrists and handcuffs on her ankles and then used rope to tie the two pairs of handcuffs together behind her. Very similar to the way he had been doing it all week, but with Deborah able to move around just ever so slightly. So after Flag secured her, locked her in the house, and left for the day with the radio blaring, headed to the Chrysler plant, Debbie started working. She wanted to live, and she wanted to be there when her children had to bury their father. She didn't want them to have to do that by themselves. She doggedly worked that rope until finally she could move just a little bit more. She managed to get the knot untied, allowing her to separate her feet and hands from one another, but still shackled in the cuffs. After she was able to move around somewhat, she made her way to a telephone in the house. Mm -hmm. Now remember, this was 1998, and everyone still had landlines at that time. Right. So when Debbie reached the phone and managed to dial 911, she started to gush out her story. Please come get me. Help me. Help me. She was crying through the phone to the 911 operator. She gave her name, the name of her husband. She told them that her kidnapper had killed Nino. She said, he killed my husband. He said he saw me in the yard and he wanted me. He was waiting in my house for me, weeping, just wanting them to come and get her. Mm -hmm. But the operator didn't immediately recognize her name, despite the heavy news coverage. But someone there made the decision to trace the call and police were able to get an address. They arrived, they rescued Debbie, and took her to Christiana Hospital, where she was found to be in fair physical condition. She had 42 physical wounds in addition to the emotional and psychological trauma from the rapes, from the kidnapping, from the murder of her husband. 
Police said that she was an amazing woman and that she survived purely on her will to live. Property records, after they came and got her, revealed the name of the man who lived in this house, and somehow police learned where he worked. They descended upon the Chrysler plant in the same day, took him away from the line in handcuffs. Flagg was arrested. He immediately confessed. He was arraigned the same day, and he was held without bail. His defense team attempted to claim insanity, that he knew what he was doing was illegal, but didn't understand that it was morally wrong. No one fell for this. He wasn't insane. He was just evil, and the judge and jury saw through him. Well, if you thought nothing was wrong with your actions, then why did you have to call off work for a week in order for nobody to find out you had done this? Yeah, good question. In May 1999, Donald Flagg was convicted of murder, rape, kidnapping, and weapons charges, and after a five-week trial, the jury vote was guilty, seven to five, so he was not able to be sentenced to death. Instead, he was sentenced to eight consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. As an extra ruling, the judge added the requirement that for the first 10 years of his confinement, he would spend the days of April 20th to April 24th in solitary confinement, which was intended to remind him of what he had done to Debbie for that period of time. Mm -hmm. I truly love when judges do stuff. I mean, it sounds petty, but if you think about it, yeah, that, that makes total sense. Yeah, and he may not have any empathy for her Mm -hmm. but at least it forces him to remember why he's in solitary for that time yeah i bet you'll have empathy for yourself when you are going through what she went through except not even yeah but while i appreciate the gesture there Mm -hmm. is a huge difference between solitary confinement in a correctional facility versus being hogtied tortured and raped for five days after you don't even have time to mourn your husband who is now deceased yeah uh, yeah Yeah. not even half of what she went through but yeah so there's that it was a i love the gesture Mm -hmm. i just wish it was more impactful upon the perpetrator yeah but flag also was later found to be guilty of an additional rape that had been unsolved until he was arrested in the police case Hmm. Two additional life sentences were then added to his time. for So now he's been sentenced to 10 life sentences with no chance of parole. Damn. Debbie Puglisi said her survival caused her to have really conflicting emotions. You know, survivor's guilt. Of mm-hmm. course she did. She was exhilarated to be alive after going through such a hell, but she was in mourning for losing her husband of 25 years. She said, I can't explain it. It was almost euphoria. But how can you be happy when you're thinking of your husband of 25 years who's just been murdered? Debbie reconnected with her first boyfriend, Bill Sharp, through whom she had originally met Nino, and the two of them married. She currently goes by Deborah Puglisi Sharp. Mm. Debbie struggled with crippling fear for a long time, and she was also faced with her children's fear and grief as well. Five years after the nightmare she endured, she wrote a book called Shattered, Reclaiming a Life Torn Apart by Violence, which brought her the opportunities to advocate for victims, to appear on Oprah, 2020, The John Walsh Show, and other television programs. She wanted to be able to express what a victim experiences and also make clear that it's possible to return to a life. The life won't be the same one, but it can be worth living. She became an inspirational speaker, lecturing to law enforcement, health professionals, victim service providers, and to victims themselves. She became the force to keep Nino's voice alive since his voice had been silenced. Mm -hmm. Deborah has returned to her nursing career, no doubt with a level of compassion above and beyond due to her experiences. But while her experiences have galvanized her and made her become stronger for others, the necessary changes in her had a deep impact upon her relationship with her children. 
The mother they had known for 19 years was suddenly replaced with this advocate, this new warrior, and they didn't know exactly how to relate to her anymore. Mm -hmm. So she wants people to understand that the victim of a violent crime is not the only one whose life or lives are impacted. Whole families struggle to find their way. Of course. Deborah had been asked if she knew that she had only one year left, what would she do? Her answer was, quote, I would spend more time with my children and grandchildren. I would cherish more of those special moments of being together. Her best advice for making the most of the time we have is, quote, again, focus more on the blessings than the struggle. I've also heard that same advice in the form of be happy for what you have rather than unhappy for what you don't have. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm glad to be reminded of that sentiment because that's really important. I mean, every day you, your life will be better if you focus more on the blessings than the struggle. Mm-hmm. Wise lady and so powerful. And I do have some good pictures of her and Nino that I will put on Instagram. I love the name Nino. I've never heard of a mean Nino. You know what I mean? You just hear that name and it's like Italian grandfather. Exactly that. Like, you know what I mean? Exactly. Well, his real name is Anthony, but everyone called him Nino. Mm -hmm. So she sounds awesome. And, you know, and I'm sorry that her family life struggled with her children because that had to be hard. You know, one, they were grieving their dad. What an awful thing for them to go through. Mm-hmm. They didn't know where their mom was. Yeah, just the not knowing has to be so traumatic. And then she comes back and she's this warrior woman. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't immediately. I mean, she had to go through a lot of therapy to deal with her PTSD, to deal with the sexual assault. You know, that's so emotionally traumatic. Mm-hmm. And apparently there were nights that he was making her sleep on the bed with him because he wanted to, you know, be aware if she tried to get away. And she said, just imagine what it's like to be forced to sleep next to the person who murdered your husband. Disgusting. Mm -hmm. She just had to feel so much revulsion towards him. Did you say, when did she become a hospice nurse? Was that... I don't know how long in her career she actually was a hospice nurse, but she was a hospice nurse at the time when she got taken from at the time body. that she got taken so where she was supposed to go to work that night that she got kidnapped she was mm-hmm. supposed to go to the hospice and care for patients to be able to do that mm-hmm. is such such a difficult job emotionally mm-hmm. and you have to have such a strong inner constitution in order to be able to do that and the benefit i guess to have the jobs that not only her but her husband had that's a couple that has a very healthy understanding of death and, like, a very healthy relationship with it. You know what I mean? Yes. Where it's not so terrifying to them, probably. So there's, like, some... And you know what? I hadn't even thought of it until you said that, but the fact that he was a funeral director, it gives me a little bit of comfort that at least those two kids had someone who was going to help them get through what they needed to do next. Because Mm -hmm. as a 19-year-old, I would have had no idea. What do you do if your parent dies? I I don't know if I'd know what to do now. Yeah, I'm 27. I have no idea. (laughs) And my parents are in their 80s. So I guess I would need to figure that out because nobody lives forever, even though I hope they will. Mm -hmm. I'm keeping my fingers crossed. But fortunately, she came back and... So it just goes to show you, if you have a really annoying neighbor who's constantly blasting their radio, call the police. Make a complaint, because you don't fucking know what's going on there. Like That's true. If somebody had called the police with a noise complaint, and then they had gone there, and he'd had to turn down the radio and talk to them, she could have been screaming for help, you know? Absolutely. 
It's That's just, a really good point, it's too. It's scary to think about. Like, you might think, oh, I'm being a new nuisance or whatever by doing this, but you might not be. You might be doing something really good. Well, and I don't know how people get found when they get found in houses where they've been held. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes it's somebody breaks out and runs down the street. Mm-hmm. But it might be something like this where mm-hmm. somebody called the police to come up and knock on the door and they hear, what's that sound in the background? You know, sounds like somebody's struggling in there. Who else is in the house with you? Mm-hmm. So that's a good point. Never thought about it before, but... I never did either. Hmm. So call call the cops on your noisy neighbors, guys. <laughs> exactly. And if you're the noisy neighbor, just beware. It mm-hmm. could be you next. So I think we're done. That is all we have for you for episode 42. We can be found... On Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at True Crime BNB. And you can send us an email at truecrimebnbpod at gmail.com. And what again was your website? O-U-L-S-O-N, familyfoundation.com. And that is for victims? For child victims of gun violence in any way, whether that be their parents or themselves who have actually been injured by gun violence. So Okay. Awesome Sounds company. like a good organization. Mm-hmm. Okay. And with that, we will leave you and we'll see you next week. Week 43. Week 43. Thanks for being here, guys. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Going to movies in those days meant you had to leave the house. Yes. And you know I try not to do that. In those days, this was like not even 10 years ago. (laughs) They asked him everything. I don't know why I said they asked him everything. That's a stupid thing to say. (laughs) They asked him everything. We want to know everything, (laughs) Even if it doesn't have anything to do with this case, we want to know What everything. is the meaning of life, Curtis? <laughs> we need to I'm know. beginning to think maybe Curtis doesn't know the yeah. meaning of life because he doesn't sound like the wisest owl in the tree. Mm-hmm. Visually, it shuts your pupils. For children. <laughs> children who grunt. <laughs> Demon children. <laughs> well, there's a lot of those in the world anymore. Yeah, and one of them lives in this house. My lady's name... I guess she's not my lady, so I'll start that over. <laughs> okay. You claim her. Over the next flute, having hard with, I'm having hard with words today. I'm having hard. <laughs> hard with words. Hard with words. Mm. Like, bad. <laughs> hard. Words hard. Weapons charges. <clears throat> and weapons charges. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> it's like I, I'm honking in Mom the middle of. Mom hit puberty all of a sudden. <laughs> I'm going to sound all nasally because I'm rubbing my nose. Just do it the whole time. Nobody would know. Five years after. <laughs> we'll just pretend like everything sounds normal. What are you guys talking about? It sounds perfect. She held out as long as we she could. We got pretty far today. I'm actually kind of impressed, puss. Come here so I can cartwheel you in. I will never make it that easy on you. You know better. You yeah. literally reverse wheelbarrowed her. <laughs> Uh-oh. Somebody's falling off of me. Um, it's, and it's not me. <laughs> she's like trying to hold pudding in your lap, you know? Just start squishing every through. <laughs> 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 Very true. <laughs>